Let's begin by reading God's Word. I'm going to read from John chapter 21, uh, verses 15 through 17. This is the Word of God, and it's eternally true. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you know that we love your son and that we love you and that we love your spirit. You also know that we're much weaker than Simon Peter. Would you strengthen us tonight through your word and through your prophets so that we will tend your sheep? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that Harry Schomburg is here tonight. Harry's an interesting man. I've known about him much longer than I've known him, um, and I've known about him because he wrote a book called False Intimacy that I felt like just the concept got at pornography in a way that nothing I'd ever heard did. So it's been very useful to me, and when I met Harry, I expected Harry to be the kind of guy who was very sensitive and very discerning and very personable, and, you know, that's the kind of guy you would expect to be able to write a book like False Intimacy, you know, he understands me, he understands men, and so you just expect him to be a very relational man. When I met him, I was very surprised to find that Harry is really sort of engineerish. And who would ever expect an engineer to write a deep and helpful book about sexual sin. So then you ask, how did Harry get into this line of work? So what Harry spends his life doing is dealing with the sexual sin of people. And it was fascinating to find out that he was there and the job needed to be done and he doesn't mind work. I mean, it's like Harry did not say back when he was, you know, a junior in, in college that, you know, I want to help people who have been sexually abused. Didn't they have some inner onks that had to be worked out by him being larger than life 
in, in the lives of people that are hurting. It's just very simple. And you know, one good thing about a man like that is it's never about him. I took years ago a counseling course uh, from Larry Crabb. And the most helpful thing, two helpful things, were number one, I learned that Larry Crabb adored his father. And that his father quoted scripture to Larry constantly as he was growing up. And that made me love Larry. The second thing he learned was if you ever find yourself getting into a power struggle when you're counseling somebody, stop. Because the minute you're in a power struggle, what's happened is you're the one that is important. And you're looking for what you can get out of the discussion, the argument, whatever is going on. And the minute that happens, you've failed because it's about you. And he said, when that happens, stop and say to the person you're counseling, listen, let's back up a little bit. How can I help you? And that's been very helpful to me through the years where I feel this tension in the counseling relationship and I feel like I'm in play and I'm getting a little irritated and, and they're telling me I'm an idiot and I already knew that anyhow. It doesn't help to be told it. And so you just stop and say, well, you asked to see me. How can I help you? Now, why am I saying this about power plays and about Harry? Well, because the essence of being a church officer, and the essence of being married to a church officer, and the essence of being a Titus II older woman is what? It is God has made you responsible. That's it. God has made you responsible. I've spent a lot of my life trying to think of what it means to be a man. In the last five years, I've become convinced that the essence of a man is what? It's responsibility. That's it. Men are responsible. That's it. doesn't get deeper than that. Everything flows from that. Yeah, men have authority, but why do men have authority? The only reason men have authority is to fulfill the responsibilities. Everybody gets all hung up about authority, but how can you fulfill responsibilities without authority? So if God's given you responsibility, he has given you whatever authority you need to carry out that responsibility. And again, it's not about you. So that's where I want to start tonight. I want to start by saying, it's not about you. It's not about me. God has ordained that there are people in this world who carry the responsibility for other people. It doesn't mean that we're responsible to decide when they get up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, but I guarantee you, if you go to them and say, the man that doesn't work shall not eat, they'll say, why are you telling me when I get to go to bed in the morning and when I get to go to bed at night? And you say, I didn't say anything about that. Well, you're trying to control my... In other words, if you take any responsibility for somebody and admonish them at a place where Scripture is clear, they'll accuse you of taking responsibility for them in places where Scripture isn't clear. They'll accuse you of being a cult leader. And yet Scripture says the man that doesn't work shouldn't eat. And so don't think that if you take responsibility for people, they're going to be so happy for you to take responsibility for them. They're going to accuse you of all kinds of things that aren't true. You're going to get a reputation. So I want to begin by saying that to be a church officer, to be a father, to be a husband, to be a helpmate to a pastor, to an elder, to a deacon, to be a deacon, to be an elder, is to be responsible. That's it. 
And the way that we fulfill responsibility is by loving Jesus. And if we love Jesus, we will tend his lambs. We won't be able to help but do that. And what a sweet thing to start forgetting about ourselves and to start thinking about others. I mean, many of you don't want to think about yourself. Wouldn't it be a relief to stop thinking about yourself? Jesus said to Peter, what? Simon Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes. And he said, ten my lambs. Ten my lambs. Now, one of the books, sometime, I don't know when, you're going to get a bibliography. And one of the books I put in our bibliography for this conference is a book called Pastoral Care. Gregory the Great was the head of the Western Church from 590 to 604. And this book, uh, Pastoral Care, I'm going to pass it around so that you can take a look at it. This book is a manual of the work that Jesus gave and called Simon Peter to. This is the classic manual of pastoral ministry in the church. It was the only patristic work translated into Greek while its author was still alive. And there is no work on pastoral care that has been as influential across church history. A number of different editions are in print still today. You can download a free copy of it from LibriVox, and you can do it for no money, and you can listen to it while you drive. Back in the ninth century, Alfred the Great translated it into Old English. He saw it as an indispensable work that every bishop should have a copy of for the instruction of the clergy under his authority in their work of caring for the sheep. Now, a deep commitment to pastoral ministry was not something that the reformers discovered and bequeathed to the church. The reformers rediscovered it and bequeathed their rediscovery to the church, and over the past five centuries, Reformed and Presbyterian pastors have been known for our commitment to this godly work of our ministry. Reformed pastors do not run cattle. Reformed pastors shepherd sheep. You ever hear pastors say, how many of you running at Presbyterian meetings? Any of you ever heard that? We don't run cattle. We shepherd sheep. In the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, Richard Baxter's classic manual of pastoral care, the Reformed pastor. How many of you have made at least an attempt to read this? Just an attempt. Okay, I can't recommend this highly enough. It's cheap, you know, a little paperback. Richard Baxter wrote this book called Pastoral Care in 1656. It's interesting, the circumstance for it being written is that a group of pastors asked him to give them messages on how they should be pastors. And so he wrote a manual for it. And now it's published, and it's you know, if, if you're familiar with it, you know that a number of times in the book he says, forgive me for saying this, but. You know, forgive me for saying this. I, I don't want to be pushy, but. I mean, I don't want to insult you, but. And he just says that all the time in the book. Well, this work has been foundational for generations of pastors like myself who are learning how to pastor the souls given to our church. When I left seminary, there was a guy named Nigel Kerr. 
who was our professor of church history. And um, Nigel Kerr, just one day, I don't know why, but he gave me this little book here. He just handed it to me. You know, said something like, Tim, you might want to read this. And he gave it to me. And this is the autobiography of Richard Baxter. And so I read it, and I was, I was fascinated by it. I'll pass this around. But don't lose those books, because they're marked to smithereens. Um, so I read the autobiography, and I was so strengthened by it that in it I read of Baxter's work on pastoral ministry called The Reformed Pastor. So I bought a copy and read it also. And reading Baxter was life-changing in the impact it had on my work in my country, Yoked Parish, in Wisconsin rural dairy land, the first eight and a half years of minister, ministry, and ever since then here in Bloomington, Indiana. Now, what is pastoral ministry? When I went to seminary, I was told that to be a pastor meant that you read books on exegesis, and you wrote exegetical papers, and you know, you translated the Hebrew, you translated the Greek, that you went to presbytery meetings, you... The curriculum of seminary, from beginning to end, was if there is ever any conflict in your church, you have failed. Nobody ever said it, but it was the clearest message I got in seminary. If there's ever conflict, you have failed. So I went to Partyville and knowing that I was called to preach and that that was what I was supposed to do. I unloaded all my books, put them in the library, hit the ground running Saturday so that I could preach Sunday. Preached. And then what do you do the rest of the week, right? That's what everybody says. The pastor works Sunday morning and there's nothing left to do the rest of the week, you know. Pastoral ministry is not the pulpit. The only reason you do the pulpit is because God uses it, but if you do the pulpit and you're not a pastor, God doesn't use the pulpit. Yeah, all the famous celebrity pastors try to claim that God uses the pulpit without them being pastors, but it ain't true. You can't even preach properly if you're not a pastor. Fortunately, many of their practice is better than their labels. Many of them do love their people. You can tell that when you listen to their sermons. So what is pastoral ministry? Well... It's where you see what you see, and by God's grace, you address it when you get a chance to address it, and you begin to tend God's lambs. The word pastor comes from the Latin word poscere, which literally means to feed or to graze. A pastor is simply a grazer of men, a shepherd of men. And all his responsibilities are easily understandable simply by learning the responsibilities of a shepherd of sheep or of a dairy farmer with a herd of milk cows. There's nothing glamorous about it. Nothing. No matter how large your flock or herd is, a good shepherd and a good dairyman know each of their sheep, each of their cows, one by one by name. Maybe the greatest cause of the decline of the Reformed part of the Protestant church in North America today is the abandonment of personal pastoral care. This is a conference on the sexual abuse of children, and the consequences of this abandonment of pastoral care are at their most destructive point. 
where the children of the church are left at the mercy of sexual predators in the church and in the church's homes. Pastors and elders have all kinds of reasons to avoid pastoral care, and especially when it comes to sexual abuse and incest. We have all kinds of reasons to avoid having anything to do with helping children of our churches who are being or who have been sexually abused. The pastor knows the elders of the church won't want to hear about it, and that if anything gets tense, the elders will tell him just to back off. If he brings it up in the session meeting, the elders meeting, the inevitable response will be, do we really have to hear about this? Can't you just handle it, pastor, without talking to us about it? And of course, this is assuming it's not the elder himself or his son who's the predator. In which case, the response will be much, much worse, and the pastor's job immediately is on the line. And beyond the elders, the pastor knows the abused child's mother isn't going to want the pastor involved in any way she doesn't approve of. She's a grizzly bear in defense mode of her baby cub. And there will be precious little that she approves of. Particularly any involvement of the civil magistrate. Don't ever think that mothers want to deal with sexual abuse of their children. Mary Lee and I and the other pastors, the tightest two women of this church, could tell of having to confront women, mothers, sisters, grandmothers, who have allowed their own flesh and blood to be raped by husbands, by brothers, One of the sweet things in our church at this time is after years of working with several very difficult situations, we now have several of those women in this church. Over the years, all of a sudden, it becomes clear to these women who have sinned so terribly against their own children, it becomes clear to them that we don't judge them, that we condemn what they did, but that we love them and understand. And so now we have these beautiful souls. And of course, when you talk to these women and you find out what they went through before they ever became mothers, you couldn't, you couldn't be heartless towards them. You couldn't just condemn them. If you think about the difficulty of the elders board, if you think about the difficulty of if it's an officer of the church who's done the abuse, if you think about the difficulty of dealing with the mother of of the child who's being abused, you know that the Bible's filled with warnings about what those who work for God are going to suffer, right? We all know this hypothetically. We all know that, you know, with many persecutions, you know, we all know that we're not going to be loved. Well, we'll be loved, but we won't be liked. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. But in seminary, they don't tell you why. You know, they don't tell you the nature of shepherding the flock. And so, yes, pastors and elders, not to mention pastors and elders' wives, have all kinds of reasons to avoid pastoral care, especially in the sexual abuse and incestuous sexual abuse of our congregation's children. But do we love our master? Do we love Jesus? Do we love him?
Do we love him? Has he forgiven us? Well, if we do, then what? Tend his lambs. Take responsibility. Even when the victim of abuse is not a child of the church, but a college student or a young single who starts attending and joins the church and then brings their needs to the attention of the college pastor, the pastor's wife, another college student, or their home fellowship small group leader, despite his father and mother not being physically present in the congregation, there are still many reasons why pastors and elders will do everything possible to avoid providing these defenseless souls suffering in terrible pain the pastoral care that is needed and which is faithful to them. This is the reason that we have an organization in the conservative church in America today called GRACE. Many of you have heard of GRACE. It's an acronym that means Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, and it's founded and led by Tully Tavigian's brother, Boz. Now have you heard of GRACE? The church cannot be trusted to provide faithful pastoral care to victims of child sexual abuse, let alone to provide faithful care to the predators who abuse them. And so this non-ecclesiastical, essentially a lobbying organization, an investigatory organization, this group forces churches and pastors and elders to do what God called us to do in the first place. And being forced into this pastoral care, we do it under duress and we do it with much resentment. It's a chess game with women psychologists and men who are lawyers and former prosecutors trying to force pastors and elders into caring for the very sheep that Christ purchased with his own blood. Out of many years of experience working with the sexually abused, their predators, their families, and the pastors and church officers of their congregations, as well as civil magistrates who have received the reports of the abuse and incest, it is my conviction that the vast majority of victims of child sexual abuse and incest are abandoned by their pastors and elders. They are left at the mercy of sexual wolves with no shepherd in the church defending them or working with them toward their healing. And let me say that this conviction would be shared by every pastor of Clear Note Fellowship Churches, not to mention the men and women of grace and other helping professionals who are left to clean up after our failure to care for the souls that are under us. Does it need to be said that protecting these souls is precisely what church officers have been called and ordained to do? We are the guardians of these souls. We are the shepherds of these sheep and lambs that our Lord purchased with his own precious blood. We must give ourselves to their care and protection. Could there be any souls and any sins that the following commands of Scripture apply to more than victims of child sexual abuse and incest. For instance, this from the Apostle Paul in Acts 20. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. 
And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one, and then what comes next? With tears. With tears. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak. So is it easy to shed tears with those who mourn? No, it's hard work. By this kind of hard work, we are to help the weak. 1 Thessalonians 2, the Apostle Paul is speaking, and he says, We speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts, for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, neither from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as what? As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you have become very dear. Who's saying this? You know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And then John 10 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches him and scatters him. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. As pastors and elders, we claim to love our sheep. We tell them we love them. We command them to love one another. At the dedication or baptism of our congregation's children, we promise publicly with the other members of our congregation to help raise the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The gospel is preached from love. Not only the love of the Father, but our love for those we are preaching that gospel to. And we tell them so. But do we really love our sheep? Do we love them individually? House by house, day by night, one by one. In his book, Intellectuals, it's a theme of Oxford historian Paul Johnson that the great intellectuals have always claimed to love mankind, to love humanity, while failing to love any individual, especially their own wife and children. And so, for instance, in Johnson's chapter on the Russian novelist Tolstoy, Johnson records how Tolstoy abandoned his wife Sonia, as well as their sick four-year-old Alexei, and set off into the country to lead some large act of social reform. And Johnson writes, quote, This desertion, as Tolstoy's wife Sonia saw it, provoked a letter which struck a new note of bitterness in their relationship. It sums up not only her own difficulties with Tolstoy, but the anger most ordinary people come to feel in coping with a great humanitarian intellectual. She says, quote, in her letter to her husband, My little one is still unwell, and I am very tender and pitying. You may not especially love your own children, But we simple mortals 
are neither able nor wish to distort our feelings or to justify our lack of love for a person by professing some love or other for the whole world. So pastors and elders, older women, is this how we look to our sheep? Do we appear to care for the congregation as a whole without having any particular love for any individuals? For any women other than our daughters and wives? Do we have any love for any children other than our own? Do our people know we are shepherds who love them one by one, or do they see us as merely loving them in the conglomerate? Now, I know I'm not addressing pastors and elders here who refuse to love the sheep individually, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Right? You knew the subject, and you came. And so, to some degree, you know, what I'm saying is Coles to Newcastle. You're in agreement with, with, with what I'm saying. Three things, though. First, you haven't always had this commitment, and part of our work is to call other pastors and elders to join us in this work. But before we make this call, we must acknowledge that these pastors and elders will object and get angry with us and try to brush us off. And so we must prepare knowing how they will come to the conversation and why. They will be resistant, they will be hostile, they will be embarrassed to admit that they don't know what they are doing, and then they will try to deny all that. Number two, we must not go into this work blindly. Again, there are many very good reasons why seminaries discourage their students from pastoral care of any risky sort. There are many very good reasons why pastors avoid this work among our flocks. The pastor or his wife who sallies forth into a particular sin of sexual abuse or incest, expecting to be seen as a hero, as faithful, as tender, and loving as a shepherd, is quite naive and will quickly have his expectations dashed to pieces. Third, because we have been faithful in one or two cases or for five or ten years of pastoral ministry, does not mean that we will, be, we will continue to be faithful in this work. It is soul-wearying, this work. You're not going to win a popularity contest, and because you've done it once or twice or for five or ten years, does not mean you're going to continue to do it, because it's unbelievably difficult and often thankless. It will cause us to lose our best friends. We will no longer be on speaking terms with some of the other elders of the church, with our own relatives. There is a reason that the Apostle Peter commands us this in 1 Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. According to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. With eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you. Now... Let me read a little bit from Gregory's Pastoral Care. The ruler should be discreet in keeping silence, profitable in speech, lest he either utter what ought to be suppressed or suppress what he ought to utter. 
For as incautious speaking leads into error, so indiscreet silence leaves in error those who might have been instructed. Now, do you think this guy's a pastor? You know what Robert Louis Stevenson says? He says, the cruelest lies are always told in silence. For often improvident rulers, fearing to lose human favor, shrink timidly from speaking freely the things that are right. They fly when the wolf cometh, if they hide themselves under silence. For hence it is that the Lord, through the prophet, abrades them, saying, dumb dogs that cannot bark. You know what, um, you know what Calvin says about pastors? He says this. Wait a second. This is at the end. He says, um, the pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Okay, you don't want to be a dumb dog that can't bark, do you? And so we should not be dumb dogs that do not bark, says God, through his prophet Isaiah. Now, to, this is still Gregory. Now, to go up against the enemy is to go with free voice against the powers of this world for defense of the flock. And to stand in the battle in the day the Lord is out, the day of the Lord is out of love and justice to resist bad men when they contend against us for... For a shepherd to have feared to say what is right, what else is it but to have turned his back in keeping silence? But surely if he puts himself in front for the flock, he opposes a wall against the enemy for the house of Israel. There's no higher calling of a pastor, an elder, a Titus II woman, than to be a wall in protection of the people of God. I want to read the end here. For the language of reproof is the key of discovery. Because by chiding, it discloses the fault of which even he who has committed it is often himself unaware. Hence, Paul says that he may be able by sound doctrine even to convince the gainsayers. Hence, through Isaiah, the Lord admonishes, saying, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet. And then this, For it is true that whosoever enters on the priesthood, pastoral ministry, undertakes the office of a herald so as to walk himself crying aloud before the coming of the judge who follows terribly. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that help you to be an elder and a pastor? To think of yourself as a herald who helps people to escape the coming of the terrible judge. Listen to John Calvin's estimate of the seriousness of pastors abandoning this pastoral call. This is in his comments dealing with the controversy between Barnabas and Paul over John Mark. And this is what Calvin writes. He says, The sin of John Mark was certainly far more serious than is commonly supposed. Indeed, he had not defected from the faith of Christ, yet he was a deserter, an apostate from his calling. He had devoted his services to Christ on this condition, that no longer would he be free or his own master. It was no more permissible for him to break the promise given in this connection than it is lawful for a wife to leave her husband or a son his father. We don't think that way about pastoral ministry, do we? How personal and intimate was the pastoral care of the elders and pastors for their flock? 
say, for instance, in Calvin's Geneva, this is another book I put down where you can just read even down to the minutes dealing with specific cases having to do with courtship, engagement, and marriage. In his ecclesiastical ordinances, which Calvin drew up for the church in Geneva, the elders were to share with the pastor the oversight, quote, of the life of everyone, unquote. John Leith, the Presbyterian, late Presbyterian theologian, says, Calvin, quote, Calvin insisted upon the session's responsibility for discipline of the congregation in the areas of morals, of participation in worship, and of Christian knowledge, unquote. And then Richard Baxter says, two quotes from the Reformed pastor, it's a sad case that good pastors and elders should settle themselves so long in the constant neglect of so great a duty as church discipline. Actually, he would say pastors, he would not say elders. The common cry is, our people are not ready for it, they won't bear it. But isn't it rather the fact that you will not bear the trouble and hatred which it will occasion? I am sure, he says later, that if it were well understood how much of the pastoral authority and work consists in church guidance, what we would call pastoral care, it would also be discerned that to be against discipline is near to being against the ministry, and to be against the ministry is near to being absolutely against the church, and to be against the church is near to being absolutely against Christ. Don't blame me for the harshness of my inference until you can avoid it or disprove it and free yourselves from the charge of it before the Lord. Now then, if we're committed to the pastoral care and church discipline taught and practiced by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, Gregory the Great, Calvin, Baxter, and countless other men down through the centuries since our Lord's ascension, what will that pastoral care and church discipline look like today, particularly with those who are suffering and have suffered sexual abuse as children? those who are suffering and have suffered incestuous abuse as children, and those women and men, older brothers and sisters, who have abused and are abusing these children. What is the prevalence of sex abuse? I'm going to give you the, the absolute lowest, most conservative possible estimate, and that's one out of four women and one out of six men. I remember my father telling telling us that he had a Bible study of men that he led in Philly. And one day in the Bible study, this would have been in the 50s, he asked them how many of them had been molested as little boys. And he said that seven of 12 of them raised their hands. And that's much closer to my experience in pastoral ministry and working with people. But let's say that we take the lowest possible estimate and we say one of four women and one of six men. What that means is that you're going to have somewhere around 20 out of a church of 100. Now then, how do we cultivate a culture of pastoral care in our church, a culture where pastors and elders deal with and expose sins of all sorts, and church members expect their pastors and elders to care for them no matter how deep and shameful their sin or how terribly they've been harmed? I have 10 points. First, we must have a biblical doctrine of man's depravity. If we expect souls to come to us and allow us to bear their burdens of sin, whether they are the victims or the predators. When David and I were growing up, Dad, probably one of his two or three favorite verses to quote to us generally was Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful 
above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I've been reading a number of books on shepherding recently, and here's an excerpt from a book published a century ago titled A Shepherd's Life by W.H. Hudson. And I want you to note the hard-nosed judgment of gypsies as a threat to sheep and to their shepherds that the author states so matter-of-factly. He writes, in the Salisbury Journal for 1820, the writer says that a common trick of the gypsies was to dig a deep pit at their camp in which to bury a stolen sheep, and on this spot they would make their campfire. If the sheep was not missed, or if no report of its loss was made to the police, the thieves would soon be able to dig it up and enjoy it. But if inquiries were made, they would have to wait until the affair had blown over. Now, mind you, he's talking about gypsies. Transpose it to Hispanics. Let's say he's talking about women. Let's say he's talking about lacrosse players. In other words, the fact that he's talking about gypsies or Roma, you know, we, we, don't, we don't have any skin in the game, right? But he's talking about a people group, and he's examining how they handle stealing sheep. And so you've got to make the parallel to us as pastors and elders and Titus two women caring for our people. We should every bit as clear-headed and perceptive about the threats to our sheep from particular people groups. He says this, The thieves would soon be able to dig it up and enjoy it, but if inquiries were made, they would have to wait until the affair had blown over. It amused me to find from an incident related to me by a workman in a village where I was staying lately that this simple ancient device is still practiced by the gypsies. My informant said that on going out at about 4 o'clock one morning during the late summer, he was surprised at seeing two gypsies with a pony and a cart at the spot where a party of them had been encamped a fortnight before. He watched them, himself unseen, and saw that they were digging a pit on the spot where they had had their fire. They took out several objects from the ground, but he was too far away to make out what they were. They put them in the cart, covered them over, then filled up the pit, trampled the earth well down, and put the ashes and burnt sticks back in the same place, after which they got into the cart and drove off. Of course, a man, even a nomad, must have some place to conceal his treasures or belongings. And the gypsy has no cellar or attic or secret cupboard. And as for his van, it is about the last place in which he would bestow anything of value or incriminating, for though he's always on the move, he is, whether he's moving or sitting still, always under a cloud of suspicion. The ground is therefore the safest place to hide things, and especially in a country like the Wilshire Downs, though he may use rocks and hollow trees in other districts. His habit is that of the jay and magpie, and of the dog with a bone to put by till it's wanted. When the buried sheep had to be kept too long buried and was found, quote, gone bad, unquote, when disinterred, I fancy it made little difference to the diners. Sometimes when sitting with gypsies at their wild hearth, I have felt curious as to the contents of that black pot simmering over the fire. No doubt it often contains strange meats, but it would not have been adequate to speak of such a matter. It is just these habits of the gypsy, which I have described shocking to the moralist and sanitarian and disgusting to the person of delicate stomach, As it may be, it is these habits which please me. 
rather than the romance and poetry which the scholar gypsy enthusiasts are fond of reading into him. He is, to me, a wild, untamable animal of curious habits. And interests me as a naturalist accordingly. In a talk I had with a gypsy a short time ago, he said to me, quote, you know what the books say, and we don't, but we know other things that are not in the books, and that's what we have. It's ours, our own, and you can't know it. The author says, it was well put, but I was not perhaps so entirely ignorant as he imagined of the nature of that special knowledge, or shall we call, shall we say, faculty, which he claimed. I take it to be cunning. The cunning of a wild animal with a man's brain. and a small and infinitesimal dose of something else which eludes us, but that something else is not of a spiritual nature. The gypsy has no such thing in him. The soul growths are rooted in the social instinct and are developed in those in which that instinct is strong. I think that if we analyze that dose of something else, we will find that it is still the animal's cunning, a special, a sublimated cunning, the fine flower of his whole nature, and that it has nothing mysterious in it, but free and as well able to exist free as the fox or jackal. But the parasitism pays him well, and he has followed it so long in his intercourse with social man that it has come to be like an instinct or secret knowledge and is nothing more than a marvelously keen penetration which reveals to him the character and degree of credulity and other mental weaknesses of his subject. We are so weak today that we are sitting ducks for predators. We refuse to think this way about anybody. And then he ends with this. He says, it's not so much the wind on the heath, brother, as the fascination of lawlessness, which makes his life an everlasting joy to him. To pit himself against gamekeeper, farmer, policeman, and everybody else, and defeat them all. To flourish like the parasitic fly on the honey, in the hive, and escape the wrath of the bees. What a perfect description of the child predator. Perfect description. If our preaching or the preaching of our pastor is not searching of the consciences of his flock, if our normal feed as a herd does not create truthfulness in the inward parts concerning the deceitfulness and desperate wickedness of all our hearts, why would any soul in torment bring their torment to us? So again, if our goal is to cultivate a cultural pastoral care in our churches in which church members bring us their sins and their griefs, 
We must have a biblical doctrine of man's depravity, starting with ourselves and continuing to our families, our children, our elders, and the members of our congregation. No Pollyannas will ever be able to guard God's sheep. Second, we must look at our sheep carefully and see what we see. If you go with a farmer into the milk parlor, he's going to know which of his cows, when they freshen, get mastitis. Well, we have to know what we're looking at. If somebody has a child, a little girl who's a waif, she'll go to anybody, just anybody. There's something wrong. I'm not saying that children shouldn't be trusting, but you know how some little children, there's something wrong with them. They seem to have no boundaries, right? You you see this stuff. If you don't, ask your wife. She'll teach you to see it. How about those who avoid, desperate to avoid eye contact with you? Women and boys, they cannot meet your eye. There's something wrong there. How about young women who are hypersexual, young men who are completely gay? And by gay, I don't mean intercourse. How about those women who are morbidly obese and always dressed down? All of these are an indication of a failure to thrive emotionally. And you can't go up to them, I've noticed that you're morbidly obese and you dress down. You know, you, you have to be sensitive and love your sheep, but you've got to see what you see. Third, we must ask the right questions, and we must expect, we must demand truthful answers. David and Cheryl got married, and at their wedding rehearsal, I sat in a park in in the picnic shelter with an older pastor, Pastor Goldsmith, wonderful older pastor, and he told me something he did with his churches. I couldn't believe that he did this, every church he went to. And I said, if I did what you do, I'd be fired. And he looked at me very quietly. He said, you know, Tim, if there's one thing I've learned in pastoral ministry, it is that people do what you expect them to do. People do what you expect them to do. When I said to the woman, what are you doing now to take care of your need for intimacy? I did not flinch. You see, you have to expect people to answer your questions. If you apologize for asking the question, they're going to lie to you. We have to ask the right questions. We have to express truthful answers. Fourth, we must not recoil in horror. We must not flinch. We must not even blink. We must not look away. Everything we do, every aspect of our bodily posture, along with our hand gestures, eye contact, and even our wording, must be carefully calibrated to receive the truth. You're God's representative. Don't sell off God's authority. It's not about you. Fifth, we must act with confidence. We must be decisive. We must not ask permission of any of the principles in the situation unless it's absolutely necessary. Confident, decisive, and not asking permission. Say, do you mind if I ask you a question? It's like, how about putting up a sign that says, I know you mind the question I'm going to ask, but please don't get mad. If the question needs to be asked, don't apologize for it. 
It's a great article I got sent a link to by this guy writing for Blaze. I forget the guy's name. And the whole article was just this rant by this guy saying, would you Christians stop apologizing for your God and his laws about homosexuality? You make me sick. Fifth, we must act with confidence, being decisive and not asking permission. Six, we must listen to what we're told and not give up what we've heard when we're assaulted by the speaker for repeating back to them what we heard. How many times has that happened? You're listening carefully. That's what counselors do. And they say something. No, no, no. I didn't mean anything by what. You're going to run into this all the time when you're counseling victims of sexual abuse and predators. You're going to hear something. You're going to know the significance of what is said. You're then going to wait a few minutes. You're going to come back to it. You're going to say, now I noticed you said such and such. And what that I think means is, and they're going to blow up at you. What, what made you come up with something like that? Don't let them shake you off the scent. God gives you discernment and perception so that you're useful. Now, I don't mean be pig-headed, bull-headed, stubborn. I don't mean getting in a power play when somebody says you're wrong. People are frustrated by me often in counseling because I'll have a theory. It'll be a theory I'm very committed to. And as I listen, testing it out, I'll realize I'm completely wrong. And so I'll just instantly throw that theory out and start on another one. And it, they find it disconcerting. So I'm not saying be pig-headed. But God will give you insights into the people that you're working with. And they're from God. So be a good steward of them. Don't let people push you around. You're the authority. You have the responsibility. And so don't apologize when you have insights and see what's going on. Seventh, we must surround ourselves with wisdom and fellow shepherds who can provide us a sounding board, pray for us, hold us accountable for purity, pray for us, meet with us and the victim and the predator, and defend us when Satan and the victims and the predators attack us. And this is the Presbyterian polity system is called the plurality of the eldership. I don't know how men handle the ministry who don't have other elders to share the ministry with them. I don't know how they do it. We must have men that know what we're going through, know what we're dealing with, know where it is. It is not a violation of confidentiality for you to have other elders or your wife and other people know what's going on. I always tell people with confidentiality, I've been doing this for 32 years, that I will not have confidences from my wife. I just won't do it. And I tell them, it doesn't mean I'm going to tell my wife everything, but I will never agree to not tell my wife something. Never. I just won't do it. She's one. I'm one, she's one. Surround yourselves with other men that bear the ministry, that hold you accountable for purity. If you have to go to a house, they'll go with you. Make sure you and your wife and the elders are together. Eight, we must mediate the conflicts that will develop in our elders board. There's no way to deal with difficult situations without having fights in the board of your church. If you think that you can care for people who have terrible pain without fighting with your other elders, you're a lunatic. You can't do it. You just can't do it. You're going to have some elders that think this and other elders that think this. And it's your job as a pastor to keep them all working together. That's what pastors do. 
And it's the hardest job there is for a pastor to work with the elders so that they don't blow up. You know, trying to get your, your officers to work together without... Th- One guy thinks that he's smarter than everybody, and the other guy thinks that he feels more than anybody. And the, the third guy thinks that his ministry is to the, to the pornography people and that he's the keeper of the ministry to the pornography people. And then you think you're brighter than all of them put together. So, you know, between the four of you, you've got real problems. So listen, if your elders fight, fighting is good. You just have to keep it fair. That's the job of the pastor, is to keep the fighting fair. And what we believe is, as the elders fight and pray, that God will bring a truth out that's bigger than any of the individuals on the elders' board. Ninth, we must be personal in all of our pastoral care. Listen to Baxter again. He says this. People will give you leave to preach against their sins and to talk as much as you will for godliness in the pulpit. If you will but leave them alone afterwards and be friendly and merry with them when you have done and talk as they do and live as they do and be indifferent with them in your conversation. For they take the pulpit to be but a stage, a place where preachers must show themselves and play their parts. Where you may have liberty for an hour to say what you like and what you say They regard not if you show them not by saying it personally to their faces. That you were in good earnest and did indeed mean them. And tenth, so we must be personal in all our pastoral care. And tenth, we must love those that God loves. We must love those that God loves. My dad wrote an article for a magazine, and one day he got a letter from a woman who was 60, and she says, I think I could write a very good article entitled The Big Truth About Many Preachers. I feel that many are called to serve God, but perhaps in some different way. The people in the congregation know they are not learned or smart, and they fear people who are unless they love them. Love is something one feels, and if one loves, he overlooks much. Can you take the big truth, the fact that too many of our ministers do not like people? They love subject matter, but are not sympathetic with the daily problems and weaknesses of the common man. That's something. Martin Luther says, And this is out of his table talk, which is where they'd sit around the table and people would write down what he said. He said, he must be of a high and great spirit that undertakes to serve the people in body and soul, for he must suffer the utmost danger and unthankfulness. Therefore, Christ said to Peter, lovest thou me? Repeating it three times together, and then he said, feed my sheep, as if he would say, Wilt thou be an upright minister and a shepherd? Then love must only do it. Thy love to me, for how else could you endure unthankfulness and spend wealth and health meeting only with persecution and ingratitude? I want to end with a little, a little story. We were called, my wife and I, out to a church that was... Uh, a church of homeschooling families, large families, 
one of the uh, families had discovered that it had sexual sin in its midst. And the whole story is complicated, but I just want to tell you about one part of the story. So we got out there, and it was very clear from the very beginning that um, the mother was barely on board with dealing with this sin. Her husband was a big guy and for years had done nothing. What we had to do is we had to go through the children and find out who had molested whom. So there was a girl who was one of the, the daughters. She was probably about eight years old. And the plan was to interview some of these daughters. And so there were three elders' wives and Mary Lee. Between these three elders' wives, there must have been 25 children. So the experience of these women in this room, elders' wives and my wife, and so you have the best of all worlds, don't you? You have Mary Lee, three elders' wives who are known by the family and their children. They're going to go in the room. They're going to interview this girl. What more could you ask for? And here I am in the hallway. I mean, this little girl doesn't know me. She's eight years old. Why would I go in that room, right? Why do you think I felt I should go in the room? But you know what I had it in my mind, and I want you to remember this. I actually don't think that the most important thing for people who are sexually abused and the victims of incest is that they parse out that they're not responsible for the incest or the sexual abuse. I actually don't think that's the most important thing. I don't think the most important thing is that you process culpability and all that has to be done, right? It's imperative that some man stand up and say, no, no. God made men to be responsible. What are these little girls, but little ones who have had no responsibility demonstrated by their pastors, their elders, their father? They are waifs. They are vulnerable. They are abandoned. And I had it in my mind that I was going to restore that little girl's trust for her pastor, for her elders, and for her father. And how? By going in there and being responsible. Listen, men. Listen, women. God has made us responsible. And these little ones must have some man who says, it stops here. You're a wall for the people of God. You're responsible. And the beautiful thing is, if you're responsible, if you see what you see, if God has given you discernment or a wife who's discerning, and that's almost as good for a pastor just to have a wife that's discerning and tells you what to do. And the beautiful thing is, that little girl will love you for it. And just by God's grace, she might learn to trust her father and her pastor and her elders again. And the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will forgive us for our failures and that you will make us faithful in tending your lambs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.